Well, we're on our last of our review lessons. Well, following the Tuesday night demonstration of love and devotion and understanding of Mary of Bethany, you know, when she anointed the Lord with her tears and her precious expensive perfume, the very next chronological event about which we read in the gospel accounts is Judas's bargain with the chief priests to betray the Lord. Now, this was Tuesday night of the Passion Week. Tuesday, remember, is the day of confrontation. Apparently, this wicked apostle decided that since it now appeared that he would not be receiving any glory or riches from his association with Jesus, that it was time at least to try to gain some benefit um, through his wasted, I'm sure what he considered wasted, three and a half years with the Lord. And so the scripture states that Satan entered into Judas and he went his way. That's in Luke 23, verse 4. It's always a sad and a very tragic day for someone when they don't go God's way, but they go their own way. And Judas, it says, went his way. And we know, of course, that his way was really whose way? Satan's way. Apparently, after everyone had retired to bed that evening, Tuesday night, Judas must have slipped away and run the two miles from Bethany over to Jer Jerusalem where he surprised the chief priests and the captains of the temple police with his offer to betray Jesus at a convenient time. In other words, when, it was, uh, when there weren't multitudes of people around. And he offered to do that, I'm sure not too excitedly, for just the mere price of 30 pieces of silver. That's as high as the chief priests were willing to go. And we know, of course, that this was a precise fulfillment of prophetic prophecy because in Zechariah 11:12, written 500 years earlier, the Lord um, God had predicted that the Messiah would be sold. He would be betrayed for how many pieces of silver? 30 pieces, exactly. As a matter of fact, not only did Zechariah state that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, but in that very same verse, 11:12, he declared that this money would be used to buy what? The potter's field, which we know was exactly what became of that betrayal money after Judas uh, had remorse for betraying innocent blood and cast that, those uh, 30 pieces of silver back at the religious rulers. Well, apparently um, Wednesday then was spent quietly, very quietly, in Bethany because absolutely nothing at all about Wednesday is recorded for us in any one of the four gospel accounts. And so we can only assume that the Lord Jesus, knowing, of course, all that lay before him, spent that day in prayer. So we call Wednesday the day of relaxation or the day of supplication. After his sleep Wednesday night, his body would not again rest until it lay in a tomb. And then Thursday began with the Lord sending Peter and John to find the owner of the upper room and to then prepare all that would be necessary for all of them to celebrate the Passover supper that very evening, Thursday evening. And we refer to Thursday as the day of, does anybody remember from what was just up there? Right, the day of preparation because it was not only the day of preparation for the Passover meal, but it was the day when the Lord prepared his men for the fact that he himself would be the Passover sacrifice, and they would be left to carry on 
his ministry and his message to the world, and he had to prepare them for that future ministry. Now, after Peter and John had everything ready, the disciples with the Lord assembled together Thursday evening, right after sunset, to celebrate the Passover. And they weren't too long assembled together when a contention arose among the disciples once again over which one of them was greatest. And Bible commentators speculate that this probably arose because of um, the seating arrangement. They were probably arguing about who would sit next to the Lord on his right and his left hand. And so once again, we see these godly men arguing over who is the greatest. Now, it was only a matter of hours before the Lord Jesus would be hanging on an agonizing cross, wasn't it? I mean, we're really down to just hours now. And yet, 11 of his men, this is incredible to think about, 11 of his closest men, the men who had spent three and a half years with him, are only concerned about their seats around a table. And one of his men was only concerned about his silver. None of the 12 were concerned about the Savior and what he would be going through. But after just a mild rebuke, you would think at a time like that, the Lord could really lay into them, but he didn't. He just gave them a very mild rebuke and then a wonderful promise that one day they would have great seats around the table. As a matter of fact, one day he told them that they would sit upon thrones judging over the 12 tribes of Israel. It's amazing when you think of the Lord's compassion and his forgiving nature. And then, of course, he shocked all of them totally by rising up from the table, laying aside his garments, girding himself in a towel, and then one by one washing each of the disciples' feet, including the one he knew would very soon be betraying him. And this action, of course, without any words needing to be spoken, although there were a few words which did pass between Peter and the Lord, but without basically many words at all, it instantly taught the disciples a very much needed lesson on selfishness and pride, and of course, on the true meaning of humility and servanthood. And it was then, after eating the Passover supper, that the Lord suddenly predicted that one of the men eating with him, he had before this said that somebody would betray him. But now he very specifically said that one of you, one of you who is eating with me right now, would betray him that night. And the Lord, as we've already learned in some of our previous passages of the scripture, knew about Judas all along, didn't he? Almost from the, well, of course, he knew about Judas before he was even born. But the other 11 disciples did not we learned as we looked at this, they did not suspect Judas one bit more than they even suspected themselves. And therefore, all of them, totally shocked, asked the Lord, is it I? Peter, John, every one of them said, is it I who is going to betray you? Including the hypocritical Judas. He also said, Lord, is it I? And of course, he knew that indeed it was him. And it was then at this time that the Lord dismissed him course after dipping the sop and handing it to him and all that but then the Lord dismissed him to go do what he was going to do quickly and Judas departed from the room now fully possessed by who by Satan himself so then once Satan and Judas had left the upper room 
the Lord was then able to institute what is commonly referred to the Lord's Supper or communion. And we know because of this example that the Lord's Supper is only for believers. It is not for unbelievers. That's why he had to dismiss Judas first. First, however, before he did institute the Lord's Supper, he had a few more predictions to make to his men. He told them that he would very soon be leaving and that where he was going, they could not follow. And Peter, of course, couldn't stand that, so he interrupted the Lord and boasted that he would lay down his life for the Lord if necessary. And at that point, Jesus then proceeded to tell Peter that it was Satan's desire to have him, to have Peter, and to sift him like wheat. But Jesus, fortunately for Peter, went on to say, but I have prayed for thee. And it was only because of the Lord's intercession for Peter that Peter did not come to total ruin. We would never have heard of Peter if the Lord hadn't interceded for him because we know later on that night, Satan did indeed sift Peter like wheat uh, with temptation and Peter failed. But Jesus had prayed for him, so he was restored. Well, then after singling out Peter because he had been the one to make that boast, the Lord then predicted to the other 10 men that all of them would scatter from him that very night. And we know, of course, that they did. And they fulfilled his prophecy here. They also fulfilled Zechariah 13:7 in the Old Testament, which said, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Of course, hearing that they would do such a terrible thing, Peter again boasted and said, in effect, he said, even if all the rest of these guys abandon you, I will never, I am ready to go both to prison and to death with you, if necessary. To which the Lord then predicted that that very night, in fact, before the cock would crow twice, Peter would deny him three times. And at hearing that, Peter strongly objected that he would never, ever do such a thing. And all of the other disciples chimed in. And in like manner as Peter, they, would, they said that they would rather die with him than desert him. And then the Lord instituted the memorial of the uh, eating of bread and the drinking of wine to remember his sacrificial death. <clears throat> and in order to really understand the Lord's Supper or communion, we took two weeks to study it in the light of the Passover celebration. And that was a very, very enlightening study because we learned how the Lord Jesus Christ himself is actually presented in the Jewish Passover Seder, is what they call it. it means uh, order, the order of uh, what they do during the celebration as it has been celebrated by the Jewish people themselves for some 2,000 years now. And we found as we went through the study of the original Passover, and then the contemporary order of celebrating the Passover, which is done every year, same time we're celebrating Resurrection Day, the Jewish people are celebrating Passover. We learned that everything the Jews do and say and even superstitiously believe with regard to their Passover celebration actually points to the greater redemption, which is offered to them by their own Messiah, the true Passover lamb 
And if you were not here to hear about that, we do have a mini album on the Lord's Supper in light of the Passover. And it is a fascinating study to learn about the, um, the matzah and how it has, it has holes which symbolize the piercing through. It has stripes on it, which of course we know that we were healed by his stripes. We learn about the afakomen and how it's hidden just as the Lord was hidden in the tomb for three days. Everything, everything in the Passover points to the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you miss that, that is a very, very worthwhile study for you to, um, to do in your spare time. Then following the institution of the Lord's Supper, Jesus then gave the third major discourse of his life. The first major discourse was the Sermon on the Mount early in his ministry. And then the second one we talked about last time was the Olivet Discourse. That was the second major discourse. The third one is his upper room discourse, or some people have called it the Paschal Discourse because it occurred on the Passover. But since it was his last message to his men, we chose to call it, does anybody remember? The, right, the Farewell Discourse. And it took us 12 lessons to cover this particular discourse, which is found in John chapters 14, 15, and 16. And of course, when we did that study, we went into minute detail which I, of course, needless to say, cannot get into right now. But again, we do have an album on the Farewell Discourse. It's tapes number 150 to 160. And in it, the Lord talked about the new dimensions which would exist for his followers, which includes you and I, if you're a born-again believer, the new dimensions that would exist in four different areas of relationships. He talked about the believer's new relationship with God, their new relationship with Christ himself, their new relationship with the world, that the world would hate them, and also their new relationship with the Holy Spirit. And we found that the Lord spoke some very, very vital information in this farewell discourse about the believer's relationship with the Holy Spirit. And we spent two lessons alone just talking about the ministries of the Holy Spirit, which is a very enlightening, again, a very enlightening study and how for the very first time the Holy Spirit would not just come upon people and then depart as he had done all throughout the Old Testament but that now he would actually indwell people and for the first time that's when the Lord told them that was in John chapter 14 but he also talked about the teaching and the comforting ministry of the Holy Spirit and he laid down um, seed teaching regarding the doctrine of election while at the same time he also spoke about the Christian's responsibility to evangelize <clears throat> because of the doctrine of free choice. We don't understand how the doctrine of election and free choice can work together, but they can, according to God, because both are taught in the Word of God, and we discussed all of that. And then he also introduced seed truth regarding the rapture of the church. This was the first time they had heard about something like this, when in John 14... Um, verse 3, he said, I will come again and I will receive you unto myself. And then furthermore, we had in that farewell discourse, the study of Christ as the true vine. Because that's in John 15, right? I am the vine, ye are the branches. And we have a little mini study of two albums on the vine and the branches as well. Many people, many Bible scholars have said that what Genesis is to the Old Testament the farewell discourse 
is to the church age and to the rest of the New Testament. So it is a very critical discourse, John chapters 14, 15, and 16. And it's believed that chapter 14 was actually spoken while the Lord was still with his men in the upper room, while chapters 15 and 16 were then spoken as he and his men departed from that upper room and began their walk to where? Right, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then... And here they are walking, except that's not a correct picture because it would be dark outside. It's now evening. Then when he actually arrived in the garden, it is speculated, and again it would be dark, <laughs> that this is where the Lord lifted up his eyes to heaven and spoke what is commonly referred to as the Lord's high priestly prayer. And that is found in John chapter what? You all right? John chapter 17. And this is a beautiful, beautiful prayer. It's the longest prayer offered by the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry. And it's a sacred chapter of the Bible because the veil of the most holy place is pulled aside and we are allowed to listen in that chapter. We are allowed to listen to inter-Trinitarian communication as God the Son speaks with God the Father. It's a beautiful prayer. Many, many times in that prayer, the Lord speaks of you and I as his love gifts, love gifts which God the Father gave to him. Dr. John Phillips, who is a great Bible commentator, uh, still alive today. He lived just a few years ago, as a matter of fact, in Raleigh. He's written many, many uh, books, the Exploring series. If you ever come across it, that's by Dr. John Phillips. We have actually had him here. If you remember, he taught us a Bible lesson on a Tuesday morning years ago. He said that like Moses at the burning bush, we would do well to remove the shoes from off of our feet when we come to John chapter 17, for the place whereon we stand is holy ground. So again, if you have never studied John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, you need to do that in your spare time, which you have loads of, right, <laughs> with all this homework. And, yeah, you have to make time. When you're driving around doing your Christmas shopping, you can listen to it in your car. The Lord and his men then, of course, entered into the Garden of Gethsemane, which literally means oil press. That's what the word means. And this was the place where the Lord's hour of great passion began. Remember, this whole week is the Passion Week. This is really where the passion began. And really, as we discussed when we studied this, this is where the Calvary victory was won, was in Gethsemane. Because this was the place where Jesus willingly surrendered to his Father's will. In the garden, the Lord Jesus faced the full, intense contemplation of all that he would encounter as he drank the cup of suffering handed to him by his father down to the very dregs the lord jesus of course because he is omniscient and knows all things had a full and a clear prospect of all the suffering which lay before him death in all of its dread stared him right in the face and yet the disappointment of his own men which he knew was coming he had just predicted it the mistreatment of the Jews, the physical torture which he would endure, and even death itself 
were not the primary issues which caused him to be sorrowful and very heavy, as it tells us in the scripture, and exceedingly sorrowful, as it also tells us, so that he fell on his face and prayed. You know, those we talked about those little pictures where you see a, him praying serenely at a rock. Totally wrong. He was fell on his face and he prayed. And it tells us in Hebrews that he offered up his prayers and supplications with strong crying, strong crying out loud and tears. And in such a manner that Luke tells us his sweat became, as it were, great blood, uh, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The primary issue which caused such unbelievable agony in that garden was that the Son of Man knew that he had to become sin itself. It was the fact that he knew his death was to be a sacrifice for sin. And this is something which none of us can even begin to relate to. Because attached to his death was something that is not attached to our deaths. Attached to his death was a curse. Because in Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. The perfectly sinless, holy God of the universe actually became a curse for you and I. When Jesus entered the garden, he knew that the time had come for him to become sin in our place. He knew that this would mean estrangement from his father. And he had never been estranged from his father in all eternity past, nor will he ever be again in eternity future. And his very soul was repulsed by the knowledge of taking upon himself the full magnitude and the defilement of all mankind's gross and profane iniquity, everything horrible that you can think of that man has done would be taken upon the Lord and he would become that sin. As our dear Savior looked deeply into that stinking cesspool of human sin, he groaned down to the very pit of his soul as he smelled its foul odor and it saw its rising poisonous fumes because he knew he had to consume the entire contents of that cup and he also knew that this same sin would repulse the same sin that repulsed him would likewise of course repulse his father and that he would consequently not only find himself completely forsaken by men but that he would also find himself completely forsaken by his father because when Christ became sin for you and I all heaven had to turn their back on him so in the garden the Lord Jesus was completely surrounded and that's what the Greek word literally meant he was completely surrounded by sorrow Gethsemane as I mentioned before was not at all a time of peace for the Lord Jesus Christ before he faced the battle so those pictures that you have in your mind or that you've seen in the books about him serenely praying there are not correct it was not a time of peace before he faced the battle Gethsemane was the place of battle and it's it is said that Calvary's victory was actually won in Gethsemane 
because at Golgotha, the place of the cross, or Calvary, the Lord yielded up his body, right? But in Gethsemane, the oil press, the place of the oil press, the Lord yielded up his will. While there's really no way that you and I can even begin to enter into all that his cup entailed, we can understand his yielded acceptance to his father's will to drink it. In the garden, the Lord ended each of his three prayer sessions. Remember, he would go pray, and then he'd return back to his men, and they would be what? Sleeping, even after he had told them to stay awake because temptation was coming their way and they needed to pray. But uh, after each one of his three prayer sessions with the Father, he ended each one of those saying, Not as I will, but as thou wilt. And because of this obedience, Paul could write, the Apostle Paul could write that Christ was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, Philippians 2.8. Well, when the Lord returned to his disciples the third time, who were, of course, again asleep, even after he had repeatedly warned them to stay awake, he then the third time let them sleep on for a little while longer. And then when the darkness of the night was suddenly pierced, by the lights of approaching torches coming up the hillside and when the quietness of the hour was suddenly broken by the clinking of many, many swords and feet stomping their way toward them, at this point he then woke up his men and in great composure and control because, see, now the battle has already been won. He's already yielded himself totally to his Father's will. So in great composure he said to his men, Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. The crushing time in the oil press was over, and the Lord went forth from this point on to redeem his divinely chosen people. From here on, we will see that the Lord is in complete control while everyone else around him is falling apart. All his enemies are falling apart, but he complete composure throughout it all and this as I said was because the victory had already been won and it had been won in a garden called Gethsemane and once again we do have a mini album it's this one has three tapes in it on the garden of Gethsemane because there were three scenes in the garden and if you want to get a good cry <laughs> you can get that series now, after discussing the mystery of the Gethsemane cup, we went on and discussed the second part of that tape series I was just telling you about, which was when we looked at the majesty of the Gethsemane king as Jesus displayed his amazing power and authority over the hundreds of Roman soldiers and that told us that there was a cohort of Roman soldiers who came to arrest him and a cohort was 600 men. So there were 600 soldiers, there was the religious rulers, and that was probably most of the Sanhedrin, which was made up of 70 men. And then there were the temple police, and they speculate there were probably about 200 of them, including the captains of the temple police. So there could have been easily around 1,000 people who came to arrest one man, <laughs> the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, this whole gang was accompanied by who? Judas Wright. And, and not only did they just come, they came with their torches and they came with their staves, kind of like a, 
a sword sort of a thing, or a, a club, I mean, and with their swords. So they came armed. But we no longer in this scene saw the suffering man of uh, the suffering son of man on his knees before his father. But in this second garden scene, we saw everyone else on their knees before the sovereign son of God. And it was so neat with just a word from his mouth. You remember when they came and said, he said, who are you seeking? He was the first one to speak. He said, who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And what did he say? Two words, I am. But when God himself speaks his name, things happen. <laughs> and when he said, I am, it tells us in the word of God, John 18, 6, if you doubt me, that the entire arresting party, and I would have loved to have seen this. I wish they had video cameras back then. The entire arresting party of some 1,000 men fell backward to the ground. Isn't that fantastic? Two words from his mouth, I am. And all they, they went down with all their clubs and their swords and their armor. And, and that was really something. We saw the majesty of the Gethsemane king. Jesus Christ was not at all at the mercy of men. They were at his mercy. He had already stated, remember, that no man would take his life from him but that he would lay it down of himself. And now in Gethsemane, before his disciples, he wanted them to see this. He wanted them to know who he was and who was really the one in control. So before them, he demonstrated the truth of this claim that no man would take his life from him. You know, it would have been so easy for him to simply walk away out of the midst of them as he had done on so many other occasions when they had tried to arrest him. He could have done that while they were all lying, you know, prostrate on the ground before him, stunned <clears throat> by what had happened to them. But he didn't walk away, did he? Because his hour had come. And the thing that kept him there as he waited for all these men to come to their senses, and while he waited for Judas to then step forward and identify him with his wicked satanic kiss, and while he waited then for them to arrest him, the thing that kept him there was his father's will. It was to God's will and to that alone that the Lord Jesus Christ submissively bowed. Well, of course, we know that the arresting party did stand up again. And after the Lord's words to protect his men, saying, in effect, since it's me you want, let these go their way. <clears throat> and the amazing thing was they obeyed him. <laughs> Who was the one in control? Who was the one giving the commands? It was Christ. Um, after all of that, Judas then did step forward and give him that kiss of betrayal. And then after that was the performance of the final pre-resurrection miracle. This is the last miracle Jesus performed before his own resurrection. And what was it? Does anybody remember? He had to do. He had to replace. Yeah. <laughs> He had to replace an ear <laughs> because impetuous Peter had took a swing with his little dagger knife that he, was, he had used earlier that day to slit the throat of a lamb. They were just little, not a big sword, but a little knife. He had used it to swing at a guy's head and he missed and he chopped off the poor guy's ear. And so the last miracle the Lord performed before his own resurrection was the healing of an ear. 
Well, after all of that, the Lord did stand there and he allowed the chief captain and his officers to seize him and bind him and then lead him off to face Annas, the high priest, or one of the two co-reigning high priests, in the first of six very illegal tries, trials that he went through. And by the way, speaking of that miracle, um, it was very appropriate, and we brought this out as we studied it, that the Lord's last miracle was the healing of a servant's ear because he has been healing the ears of those who are spiritually deaf, those who are born slaves to sin ever since, because faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that's what he's in the business of doing is healing ears, isn't it? I'm so glad that he healed my ear so that they opened up and I could hear his precious word and believe it. Well, the Lord altogether faced six trials and we might mention as we did that six is the number of what man and so these tell us right it tells us right up front by the fact that there were six of these that these were men's trials and they had nothing to do whatsoever with god's perspective of his son these were men's trials totally now the first three trials were religious trials and they were directed by the Jewish religious leaders and the last three trials were civil trials which came under the authority of the Romans. Now the Lord's first trial before Annas, I'm going to skip that, you know that while all that was going on Peter did deny the Lord three times and that's why I had that up there just to remind you that this was going on in the meantime and as we looked at Peter back and forth we were always reminded when we went back to Peter and saw him denying the Lord, we were always reminded why the Lord had to die. And that was because of sinners like Peter and like you and I, because who of us has not denied the Lord in one way or another? But the Lord's first trial then before Annas was illegal in every single sense of the word. And this, you can find this, the trial of Annas, uh, before Annas is only mentioned in the Gospel of John. You can find it in John 18, verses 19 and 23. The other Gospel writers do not give us the trial before Annas. Now, there were two things about which Annas questioned the Lord with regard to, number one, his disciples, and number two, his doctrine. And the Lord, in answer to those two questions, did not say anything at all about his disciples, because as always, he was protecting them. While Peter was out in the courtyard denying him, the Lord was inside Annas' home protecting Peter. It's just his nature. So he didn't say anything at all about the um, disciples. And then with regard to the question about his doctrine, about what he was teaching, the Lord totally frustrated Annas um, by answering his question both with a rebuke to Annas and then, of course, with a question of his own, which the Lord was so good at answering questions with questions. In effect, he told Annas that there was no reason to ask him about his doctrine or his teaching because he had always openly taught in the temple and in all the local synagogues of the various towns where many, many, many witnesses had heard him. And so this was really a rebuke to Annas of the illegal nature of the trial, which was not being held in public as it should have been. It was held secretly just in Annas's home there. 
and of course which was illegal because there were no witnesses there for the defense when literally thousands of witnesses were available at that very time right there in the city of Jerusalem because hundreds of people or thousands of people who had heard Jesus teach openly were right there to celebrate the Passover um, celebration so anybody could have gone and gotten them but of course Annas didn't want any witnesses for the defense and so this was, again was illegal really when we studied it we saw that Jesus didn't answer directly either one of Annas's questions about either his disciples or about his doctrine because he knew full well that Annas <clears throat> was only really interested in trying to get him the Lord to incriminate himself which was also against Jewish law it was illegal for someone for the judge or the jury to try to get the uh, the, the um, accused to incriminate himself but that's what they wanted to do all through these trials <clears throat> and his uh, trial before Annas the high priest was also illegal for some of the following reasons which you can see up here I can't get them all on there but it was held at night number one that was totally illegal it was not held in public which was illegal a quorum of the Sanhedrin was not present furthermore it was a feast day and you could never have a trial on a feast day uh, in addition to that there was no charge which was pretty serious I mean you don't bring somebody in and when there's no charge and there's no accusing witnesses and there were neither of those and really the sole purpose of that trial was to get the defendant as I said to incriminate himself there were no witnesses for the defense and the prisoner then and this was also very illegal was struck by a guard and that guard was not reprimanded for what he did when he struck the Lord with his hand. And this guard was also permitted to question the defendant. All these things were illegal. Well, even though Annas had not been successful in getting Jesus to incriminate himself, he had been successful in stalling for time so that Caiaphas, his son-in-law and co-reigning high priest, uh, could be could get word out to all the other members or a lot of the members of the Sanhedrin we can probably feel very confident that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were not included in this but many of the members of the Sanhedrin uh, were able to assemble together secretly in Caiaphas's house and they did all this while the Lord was before Annas so he did stall for time and in that he was successful and then again everything about the second trial before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin was illegal because it was held before dawn so it was still held at night um, and it was strictly forbidden by a rabbinical law to have a trial by night and it was also strictly forbidden to have a trial in private residences and this trial was not held in the um, Hall of Stones in the temple it was held in Caiaphas's and furthermore the council of the Sanhedrin was only empowered by rabbinical law to act as judge and jury in a legal proceeding it was not to initiate the charges but this is precisely what they were doing in the Lord's case because still there was no formal charge against him they arrested him but for no charge 
So the council was illegally acting as prosecutor in order to carry out its already predetermined plan to execute Jesus. They had already decided before any of this that they were going to get rid of him. Now, because the Lord was totally innocent, the council knew that the only way it could find accusation against him was to find false witnesses. Yet, even in their illegal methods of trying to go out and find false witnesses, they still they couldn't find two false witnesses whose testimonies agreed. So they were, even in trying to do something illegal, they couldn't succeed. So they found themselves in a very embarrassing deadlock until Caiaphas finally tried the only thing that he could think to do, which would get Jesus to incriminate himself. He put the Lord under a sacred oath and he asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And to that question, the Lord, with majestic calm and authority, spoke words which have rung down through the corridors of history ever since. He said, thou hast said. And what do you think that means? Yes, it's as you say. I am the Christ, the Son of God. And then he went on to add these words. He said, I say unto you, hereafter ye shall see the Son of Man. And that was definitely a term for the Messiah from Daniel, the Old Testament book of Daniel. You shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of God the Father, or of power, and coming in the clouds of heaven. In his answer here, Jesus was not only saying that he was the Christ, the Messiah, but that he was, in fact, the very Son of God who would one day come return. He would return as Caiaphas's judge. So he was telling Caiaphas, you're not my judge. I'm coming back, and I am going to be your judge. And to this answer, Caiaphas, with great theatrical display, acted like he was so horrified, tore at his clothes, and he said, he hath spoken blasphemy, what need have we further of witnesses? And all the Sanhedrin members cried out together and said, He is guilty of death. Not only then was this second trial illegal for the reasons that I just mentioned, but Caiaphas then failed to have the Sanhedrin members polled individually, in other words, to take their vote individually one by one, which was rabbinic law. They were supposed to start from the youngest to the eldest so the elder members wouldn't influence the younger. He didn't do that. He didn't have the results tabulated by the scribes, which was, again, what rabbinical judicial protocol demanded. They, they disregarded all of these things. And he also failed to release the prisoner at this point, which he should have. Because Jewish law stated that when a vote for condemnation was unanimous, which it was here, they all said he's guilty of death, but they said whenever it was unanimous, the defendant was to be immediately released because it demonstrated that the element of mercy was lacking. So really, they should have just let him go at that point. An additional illegal aspect to this trial was then showed by the treatment which the prisoner received. Rather than dismissing themselves at that point from this illegal courtroom to begin a required three-day period of fasting and prayer, which again was to follow all verdicts of condemnation, 
the religious rulers, instead of doing that, took it upon themselves, and this was contrary to all Jewish and Roman law, they took it upon themselves to punish the accused. And in doing so, they were really demonstrating the spiritual condition of their heart and how hardened and cruel they really were. The highest insult to a Jew, and when I think about that, it, it's not only to a Jew, it's really to anybody, the highest insult is to have someone spit in your face. Can you think of anything worse, really? And this was exactly what these spiritual leaders, now you have to remember, you know, I've heard about the spitting the Lord took in his face, but it never really dawned on me till we studied this that it was the Sanhedrin members that did that. I always thought it was the Romans and, you know, other people. But here it was, the very prestigious chief priests and Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, the leaders of the nation. Be like if we gathered together all, you know, the pastors <laughs> and had them spit in the Lord's face. And this is what they did to their own Messiah. The foul spit of one man after another was hatefully aimed right in the Lord's face until all their mixed saliva literally dripped down his face, you know, his, from his forehead to his cheeks, into his beard, and, and then onto his chest. And the incarnate God himself just stood there. And he endured all this disgusting and shameful treatment in total silence and dignity. And you know why he did that? He did that for us. We should have been the ones standing there. But he did it for us. These and these ugly men doing this to their own Messiah. I mean, it's just incredible how they wanted the Messiah to come. Here they're spitting on him. They didn't even realize that they were helping him in doing that. They were helping him to fulfill messianic prophecy. They were proving that he was the Messiah. Because Isaiah 50, verse 6, says, I hid not my face from shame, and what's the rest of it? And spitting. And then Luke 22:64 tells us that they increased this sinful little game of theirs by blindfolding Jesus and then slapping him. And you know they didn't do it gently. And sarcastically saying, in effect, if you are who you claim to be, then tell us who it was that just slapped you. Well, he didn't answer at that time. He didn't answer a single word. But I can tell you with all assurance that one day, on Judgment Day, he is going to tell each and every one of those men exactly who they were. And that is not going to be a happy day for those men. And Luke continued then his account of this horrible trial by telling us that they then went on to say many other blasphemous things against him. You know, they had accused him of blasphemy against God. But the truth of the matter is that they were really the true blasphemers, weren't they? They were blaspheming the Son of God himself, and they didn't even realize it. And then Mark tells us that after they grew tired of this time of torment, they turned him over the, to the temple guard, who then struck him repeatedly in the face with their hands. And that's in Mark 14, 65. 
and then in order to give some type of uh, legal appearance to their notoriously illegal proceedings, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people assembled together early in the dawn of the new day. Now it's Friday, the day of crucifixion. They did gather together in the required hall of stones to formally condemn Jesus to death. So really this third religious phase of the Lord's trial was merely to ratify what had already been illegally determined during the night. And basically that was a very quick trial. They once again just asked him if he was the Christ, and again he affirmed that he was. And then, the, then they had to take, I'm skipping some things, so I'm going to lose my train of thought because of time here. I've got to go fast. But then they had to deliver Jesus over to um, Pilate. They just wanted to turn the whole thing over to the Romans to carry out the death sentence. So they took him to Pontius Pilate, who was the fifth Roman governor over Judea. And this poor man... And I do sometimes feel sorry for him, although he was guilty. Um, but he had already learned by bitter experience in the few years in which he had been ruling over the Jewish people, he had learned how adamantly they opposed any semblance of violation of their religious rules, or rituals. So uh, his position with Caesar at this point in his reign, I think he'd been ruling over them like about six years at this point, his position with Caesar was already now on very shaky ground because of the religious rulers of Israel. And he dared not displease them one more time, even if it was at the expense of murdering an innocent man. Now, over and over again, throughout the early morning dilemma of Pilate and what to do with Jesus, we found that he tried desperately to get Jesus released because he was perceptive enough to know that the charges the Jews were bringing against Jesus were completely false and that really they only wanted him dead because they were jealous of him, they were envious of him. First of all, he tried to get the Lord released by having the Jews themselves take him and judge him according to their own law and, and uh, you know, go ahead, if you want to judge him, you execute him. He was turning that over to them. But they put the situation right back on him by telling him, oh, no, you know, you know that it's unlawful for us to put any man to death. And then he declared the Lord innocent after his first interview with Jesus, which ended, remember, with the Lord saying, in effect, I am a king and I came into the world to bear witness of the truth. And what did Pilate say in response to that? Very sarcastically, he said, what is truth? But after that, he did go out of the praetorium there and he faced the Jews and he declared Jesus innocent. But when the Jews then accused Jesus of stirring up all the people Throughout Judea, beginning from Galilee, Pilate, instead of sticking with his verdict of innocence, thought now that he could maybe avoid this whole issue of getting the Jews upset with him by turning Jesus over to Herod. Because when he found out that Jesus was from Galilee, he said, well, this is Herod's responsibility. Herod was in Jerusalem for the Passover, and he was the Tetrarch of Galilee. And so what he did was he had Jesus sent over to Herod. And this was the second phase of the Lord's civil trial, which was anything but civil. And it was before Herod Antipas, that fox, you know, as Jesus himself had called him, Herod Antipas was the man who had had 
John the Bab Baptist beheaded. Now Herod wasn't interested interested really in anything except having some entertainment and he wanted to see a miracle he'd heard about Jesus and he was really excited that he was now coming to see him because he wanted to see a miracle performed but when he found out that the Lord wouldn't even speak to him much less do a miracle uh, he decided well at least I'll have a little fun with him with my soldiers and then I'll send him back to Pilate so the soldiers and he had a little time of fun and mockery with the Lord they put on him a gorgeous robe and made fun of him for being you know claiming to be the king of the Jews but then they sent him back to Pilate now the Lord of course throughout this entire shameful night and early morning session of all these illegal and immoral trials both at the hands of the Jews and at the hands of the Romans, was again fulfilling prophecy. And we spoke about this over and over again as we went through those trials. Because as Isaiah 53 predicted, he was as a lamb being led to the slaughter who opened not his mouth. He never spoke out one angry outburst. And he never showed even one flicker of bitterness or resentment on his facial expression. His calm, dignified manner, regardless of what men were doing to him, only made his enemies feel all the more strongly against him because it made them feel their own guilt more strongly. And in turn, they wanted to get rid of him all the more quickly. You know, darkness hates the light. The Jews tried to get rid of the responsibility of Jesus by turning him over to the Romans, to Pilate. Pilate tried to get rid of the same responsibility by turning him over to Herod. Herod now likewise tried to get rid of the responsibility by returning him to Pilate. And so who was stuck with him? Pilate. Poor Pilate. But it was his own fault. Because really he should have stood his ground with his original verdict of innocence. He should have just released Jesus. Now, when Herod did return the Lord to Pilate, Pilate again went out of the praetorium before the Jews and the multitude of people who were now beginning to grow. The multitude was beginning to grow because it was getting later and later into the morning, and they saw the Jews and they wondered what was going on, so they joined them. And once again, this time when he went out before them, he told them that he found no fault in Jesus. And furthermore, he not only said, I find no fault in him, but Herod didn't find anything worthy of death either. So he added two more pronouncements of innocence. But then, uh, he, for some reason, he thought he could yet, even though now he said again that he was innocent, he thought of another reason, a way that maybe he could yet get out of his predicament without getting the religious rulers upset with him. It, so it was at this point that Pilate offered to chastise Jesus. In other words, to scourge him so that the Jews could then refer to Jesus as a criminal. See, he would lose all his um, popularity with the people because now they could say he is a criminal, he's been scourged by the Romans. So he offered to do that, even though he'd already now twice said he was not guilty. And then he threw out this suggestion. He said, according to your Passover custom, we can release one prisoner on death row. And he was saying, I'll chastise him, but then I'll let him be the prisoner that I let go according to this custom. Apparently, I think Pilate was expecting the common people who had by this time you know, joined the council members. I think he was um, planning on them 
overriding their leaders because he knew how popular Jesus was with the people. And he figured that they would outvote their leaders and they would choose to release, uh, to release Jesus instead of someone else on death row. But Pilate was really here beginning to fall. He was beginning to slip in his desperate attempt to settle the issue by way of compromise. Rather than just letting the Lord go, he was trying to compromise. And compromise is always wrong when it comes to moral issues. So he went back at this point into the praetorium, I guess to let the people decide who they were going to ask for. And then it was at that time he received a very urgent message from Mrs. Pilate who had experienced a terrible night's sleep because of Jesus, and her urgent message wanted her husband to have nothing to do with that just man. You know, Mrs. Pilate was trying to be a good helpmate, wasn't she? And she was concerned. She was truly frightened for her husband. So she listened to her own conscience, and she sent him this ur urgent message. And by doing this, she was adding her own testimony of the Lord's innocence because she called him a just man. Well, to make a long story short, we know he did not listen to his wife's advice, which he should have. And we found out that tradition does tell us that Mrs. Pilate went on to become a Christian, and she was known in the early Christian church. Well, while Pilate had been inside the judgment hall, the chief priests had been moving among the people, and it told us that they moved like an earthquake. So they were just shaking up the people, persuading them to vote for a very well-known insurrectionist and a murderer named, what, Barabbas, which means son of the father. And there was a lot of significance in that, which I can't get into now, to vote for Barabbas instead of for Jesus. And tragically, therefore, when Pilate went before them and said, which of the two shall I release unto you? They all answered together, away with this man, speaking of Jesus, and release unto us Barabbas. And Pilate was shocked, but he still had one more compromising idea up his sleeve. He thought that he could play upon the crowd's sympathy by having Jesus scourged, even though he had declared him innocent over and over again. And then what he thought he would do is he would exhibit him before the multitude in that awful post-scourging condition. And he felt sure that when they saw this good man who had only gone among the people doing good things, they felt he felt sure that when they saw him in such horrible pain that their rage would be eased and that their pity would be roused and that they would feel that he had undergone enough suffering and that, that then they would allow Pilate to release him. So what did he do? He turned Jesus over to his soldiers for scourging. And in doing this, he was again fulfilling prophecy, the prophecy of Isaiah 50, verse 6, and also 53, 5. By his stripes we are healed, in other words. Now, Roman scourging was a punishment which was so painful, and I always hate to go through this, but I need to. It was so painful that most victims either fainted during it or oftentimes did not even survive. The victim was, was either stretched against a pillar, as in this picture, or he was tied to a post um, by, by the wrists over his head, oh, I guess that's this picture, with his feet dangling, not even touching the ground, and his body very taut, you know, very tight, 
or else he would be bent low over a post with his hands being tied behind his back so of course he couldn't defend himself. And the torment tool was a whip with a short handle to which were attached several leather thongs. And each individual thong had attached to it very sharp pieces of either bone or metal or iron. Oftentimes there were two men doing the scourging, one on each side of the victim. So as soon as one hit the back of the victim, then the other one would do it. And you know, they'd each take turns hitting the back of the victim. The first blow usually knocked out all the breath from the victim, while the second blow then laid open the skin. And each consecutive lash proceeded to rip the flesh from the bones, to lacerate the muscles, you know, to tear open the veins and the arteries. And it was not uncommon for vital organs such as the kidneys and the spleen to actually be exposed and slashed. And Roman scourging, we found out, was actually worse than Jewish scourging because for one thing, the Jews always numbered the lashes and stopped at what number? You know, 39, like Paul had had several times. But the Romans didn't count and they, they went without mercy. So we are not sure how many they might have put upon the Lord. Furthermore, the Jews only exposed, as in this picture, they only exposed the upper part of the victim's body, whereas the Romans exposed the whole backside of the body. They took all the clothing off. Now, when the Lord's scourging was finished, the soldiers then made a crown of thorns, as you know, and placed it upon his head. And, of course, that would stick into his temple the, because the thorns in that country that grew on the nearby bushes were very long and sharp and then they of course arrayed him in a purple robe which we speculated was probably one of the capes of the Roman soldiers which were scarlet in color and then they had a little game they each came up to him and sarcastically said hail king of the Jews and of course the Romans hated the Jews and so they were making fun of him and they again struck him in the face with their hands and they, uh, they wanted to mock him because of being the king of the people that they hated. You know, they thought of the zealots and the ones that would sneak up on them and slit their throats. So they had no love for this man. And they really were mocking the Jewish people through this one who claimed to be their king. And the forces of hell were really having their heyday, weren't they? They were having their heyday with God's son. Yet in spite of all of his pain and his suffering and his shame and his humiliation... The Lord again stood there in silent dignity. He could have spoken one word like he had done back in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he could have stilled every scorning face in that room. He could have frozen them in place. He could have paralyzed them. He could have thrown them all backwards like he had done. He could have also instantly healed as he had healed so many other people. He could have healed every aching, lacerated, bloodied, bruised part of his body instantly and totally right before their eyes and he could have turned his thorny crown and his mocking scarlet cape into majestic garb so radiant that it would have blinded the eyes of everyone in that room but he didn't do any of those things he willingly took the sinner's place 
and he endured that pounding on his face so that the Old Testament prophet Isaiah was again correct when he proclaimed that, quote, his visage was so marred more than any man, more than any man had ever taken any punishment, the Lord took it. It, you couldn't even tell that his face was the face of a man. Other scripture tells us that they plucked out the hairs from his beard as well. Well, when Pilate then took the scourged and the humiliated Jesus out before the mob, which at this time had grown very large, he said to them, Behold the man. And there's a lot of significance in that, which I can't get into. And then he asked them, What? then shall I do unto Jesus which is called the Christ hoping that now their pity for him seeing him like this would allow him to release the Lord and of course we know he must have been very shocked and very disappointed when they all cried out what crucify him crucify him the sight I think of that thorny crown on his head and the scarlet robe didn't arouse their sympathy at all. It merely incited the Jewish people to a greater anger because they were furious that this one, this Galilean carpenter, had brought such Roman scorn and ridicule on their Jewish messianic hopes and aspirations. So the sight of Jesus in such outrageous humility merely inflamed their anger and their rage you know they were saying to think that such a one as this dared to call himself our king now Pilate who was startled by this vehement reaction still struggled in his persistence and so with a combination of irony and determination he said well take him yourselves and crucify him because I find no crime in him and then it was at this time that the Jews brought out their trump card. They brought out for the first time the religious issue, which had, no, this wasn't their trump card. I take that back. They brought forth a religious issue, which was really the bottom line for everything, and which had caused them to condemn Jesus in their own court. They told Pilate now that the reason that they had brought him to him for crucifixion was that he claimed to be the very son of God. And when Pilate heard that, you know, he was already pretty worried and concerned about this whole situation. His wife had warned him. He knew he was innocent, and he was very concerned. But now when he heard that this fellow claimed to be the son of God, his anxiety increased, so he took the Lord back into the praetorium. They were constantly going back and forth, remember? Inside, outside, inside. I think there was like six or seven times they did that. He took, took him back in, and he asked him once again where he was from. But the Lord did not answer him this time. I mean, he had already told him, so he remained silent. And then Pilate got angry, and he said, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and power to release thee? To which the Lord then very calmly again answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee, in other words, Caiaphas, the high priest, hath the greater, what? Sin. What was the last word the Lord spoke before he picked up his cross and went to Calvary? Sin. This is it. You're looking at it. Very appropriate. Last word he spoke. He picked up his cross and went to Calvary because of 
months in. And at this, Pilate then went out again before the crowd, and he brought Jesus with him. And John, 12, uh, John 19, 12 tells us that he sought to release him in a great way. And the Greek there meant more harder, more harder, harder than any other way he had ever tried before. He really tried to release him this time. Now, this is when they finally used their trump card. They knew that... Um, Pilate's Achilles heel was his relationship with who? Caesar, the emperor. And so they now struck him where they knew he was most vulnerable. With satanic cunning, they insinuated that if Pilate did not consent to their desires, they would accuse him of treason. They'd go straight to Caesar. And he knew they meant it because they had done it before, if you study the history. So they said, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king, as Jesus has done, speaks against Caesar. So if you don't do something about this, we're going to tell Caesar. What they were threatening to do was tell the emperor that Pilate had refused to deal with a man who claimed to be a rival king of Caesar, which, of course, the Lord never really did anyway. He said, I'm a king, but not of this world. My kingdom is spiritual kingdom. And that he would not, then Pilate would not be Caesar's friend, and Caesar was not, already not too happy with Pilate. So Pilate knew that such news to Caesar would probably cost him his position, if not his life. So he knew at this point that he had been defeated, and he sat down on a place which is called the pavement, or Gabbatha in Hebrew. And in an attempt to mock Caiaphas and Annas, Pilate said, Behold your king. He was being sarcastic. He had now made up his mind that he would cast Jesus to the bloodthirsty beasts of prey. But he was determined to do all that he could by way of these mocking words, behold your king, toward his opponent, opponents to make their victory as unpleasant as possible. And we know, we'll learn in a few weeks, he also did this with what he put on the placard, you know, above the Lord's cross. Now, when the Jews heard Pilate's sarcastic words, behold your king, they answered him with these horribly tragic words. We have no king but Caesar. They had accused Jesus of blasphemy, and yet they were now choosing Caesar over God, weren't they? And even though we know that they were merely saying these words in order to get what they wanted, they didn't really mean them, but God took them at their word, and they have been under their own verdict ever since with extremely bitter consequences, if you know anything at all about Jewish history. And then with this, the long six-phased trial of the Lord Jesus was over. The soldiers led him away back into the praetorium, and you'd think it would be over, but it wasn't. There, once again, they mocked him, and they beat him on the head with a reed that they had put in his right hand, hand to be like a, a scepter. You know, they were mocking him for his crown and his robe, and this was his scepter. They took that out of his hand, and they beat him on the head with it. And, of course, that only drove the thorns further down into his scalp. And they said to him again, Hail, King of the Jews. 
and then they added Gentile spit. To this point, we hadn't heard about Gentiles spitting in his face, but they then added their spit into the, his face. Um, he was already covered, we know, with Jewish spit and bruises and, of course, his own precious blood. But it's appropriate, I guess, because he came to save both Jew and Gentile, that both Jew and Gentile spit in his face. What a Savior we have to endure all of that for us. It's incredible. And this, then, is where we left off in our long Life of Christ study.